Uh, good morning, be free. My name is Eddie Park. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm the token Asian millennial pastor. Uh, you can purchase us online on Amazon.com. You can find us in your local Target store. Let's put up my family picture up there. Uh, that's my beautiful wife, Eunice. If you're from Biola, um, you probably recognize her. She works in the advancement office there. That's my little guy, Haddon. And that's not your regular host at P.F. Chang. That's, that's me. That's myself. Yeah, I went through this phase where I really wanted to grow facial hair, but I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. Uh, that's, that's my son. That's, that's a close-up of my son, Haddon Timothy. And, and yesterday was his first birthday. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We threw a big uh, reception type of party. We're Korean. And if you know Koreans, if you are Korean, you know that the first birthday of the first grandchild, and if he's a male, is a big deal. In Korean culture, first birthdays are so, such a big deal that even some families pay more money on the first birthday than the wedding. That's how, that's how special it is. And so we threw a big party. And, and one of the weird things that we do at, at, at this birthday is we do this like voodoo ritual. It's, it's really strange. It, we, we put out a blanket and we let the baby crawl to an object. And depending what that object is and what it represents, it determines their entire life. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, usually it's like a pencil or, a, or money. But what we did is we, we laid out a keyboard piano uh, because uh, my wife and I are both classically trained musicians. My wife is a cellist. She's been up here a few times, and I'm a classic trained violinist. And uh, we put dollar bills because we possibly want him to be a businessman or a CEO. Uh, we put a paintbrush because my, my wife is very, very artistic. And we put a golf ball uh, to represent he might be a pro athlete because let's face it, he's not going to go to the NBA or NFL. <laughs> it's okay to laugh at that. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, I put a Bible because I want my son to carry on my mantle and the legacy of being a preacher. And it kills me because he didn't pick the Bible. <laughs> what do you think he picked? Any guesses? He, put, he picked the least Asian certified one. He picked the golf ball. <laughs> so we're going to have a pro athlete. You know, and I, I'm a little okay with that because if he gets really good, uh, then he could probably make it onto the Stanford golf team because I'm not paying for college. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Stanford, I just finished a program at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, after, after I finished seminary, I, I knew that I was going to continue in my education. The Asian side of me said, I, I need a PhD. The millennial side of me says, I want to change the world. So I, I thought about trying to do a PhD where I could change the world, but also get a lot of honor and a lot of degrees. And, um, and so I really struggled. I got into a PhD program uh, up in Aberdeen in Scotland, and I really wrestled because the millennial side of me uh, really had this tension of, do I, do I want to just think about changing the world, or do I actually want to learn how to change the world? So I decided to apply to, to Stanford, graduate school business, and, and when you apply and you go on their website, you see in bold letters their mission statement. It says, change lives, change organizations, change the world. And the skeptic side of me said, you know, every organization, every church, every school has the grandiose mission statement, change the world, right? Even here at EV Free, follow, connect, go into the world. 
But when I was at Stanford, I, I actually realized they're actually changing the world. They're alleviating some of the world's greatest pain. I'll give you an example. One of, one of the things that they do is they create cohorts with mixed graduate students. So they'll mix up MBA students, medical students, law students, engineering students. And one of the cohorts that they form were two MBA students, a medical student, and a bioengineer. And they were assigned one of the world's greatest problems. They were assigned infant mortality in India. In India, because of the caste system, many women are giving birth in the slums. And because of the malnutrition, they're, they're giving birth to many premature babies. And the reason that there are so many deaths is that it takes too long for the premature baby to end up, end up going to a hospital and making it into an incubator. And so they're given this task, and they created this product. They created a sleeping bag. They created a sleeping bag where at the minute this premature baby is born, they just have to boil it in water, and they slip the baby into the sleeping bag, and it simulates the incubator. And it lasts four hours, which is the approximate time it takes to get from the village to a local hospital. And I find this story fascinating because, you know, every student had their own agenda coming to Stanford. Some wanted to work at the, the best global consulting firm. Some wanted to work in venture capital. Some wanted to work for Google. Some wanted to work and do the cutting edge, cutting edge medical research. But what happened was this cohort, they ended up graduating last year. And instead of taking their job offers, which were amazing, they decided to form a nonprofit. That nonprofit is called Embrace. And they decided to give their lives to ending infant mortality in the slums of India. Yeah. And if I were to ask you how many lives they saved last year, what would you say? 80,000 premature babies' lives were saved because of their product. They're changing the world. And it was fascinating because as I was being trained with these case studies, the foundation, the core message of how to change the world was this concept called compassion, empathy. So here I am at Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I'm listening to some of the greatest minds in the world, neuroscience doctorates, communication doctorates, business management doctorates, psychology doctorates, and they're all saying that how to change the world starts with compassion. And it's fascinating the way they described it. They said that compassion is this. It is a love and care that transcends what a human is capable of doing. It goes beyond what is expected from a human being. It's greater than that. And isn't that what we do here? Isn't that what this is all for? To learn how to do that. I think of my son and the legacy that I'll leave to him. I'm entrusted with raising up the next generation of a world changer. And I need to teach him compassion. But that's not so easy to do. 
If you, if you ask me to teach them the Bible, I can do that. If you, if you, teach me, if you, if you tell me that I, I need to teach them how to pray and say the right words, I could do that. If I, if I need to teach them the right praise song, I could do that. But when it comes to actually teaching someone compassion, how do you do that? That's a whole other question. I know a lot of you guys are parents. A lot of you are grandparents. Some of you are working in children's ministry. Some of you are working with children. Some of you are working with employees that are younger than you and you're mentoring. If we are entrusted with raising up and empowering the next generation of global world changers, it is vital that we teach them compassion, that we teach them the love that transcends what is humanly possible. How do we do that? How do we teach this next generation compassion? I try to read through where to find maybe a ritual or tradition in history, and I found that the earliest tradition of faith was in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Easter of Judaism, and it's a day where all Jew, uh, Jews celebrate the Day of Atonement, God's compassion and mercy and in this day in the afternoon there is a there is a scripture reading that a rabbi would read aloud a scripture that will really that would teach children in the next generation compassion and that scripture is the book of Jonah and that's our text for today so turn with me to book of Jonah You know, Jonah, Jonah is one of, those, one of those stories in the Bible that I know very, very well. Um, I grew up in the church, and I, I think I, I learned Jonah about four times a year in Sunday school. And I would ask my mom, uh, Mom, why, why, why am I learning Jonah so much? There's 66 books in the Bible. How come we never learn Amos or Nahum or Obadiah or Haggai? And then in my adult life, I started reading those books, and I was like, I know why we didn't learn those books. (laughs) It's pretty rough. But, you know, in my adult life, I'm I'm really beginning to really appreciate the complexity and irony and beauty of the book of Jonah and all it it has to entail. And so uh, I love to just go to the book of Jonah because it's in the book of Jonah that there's something that is teaching the next generation compassion, and we, we're going to discover what that is today. Um, a couple things before we actually start reading the book of Jonah are, uh, that I find really helpful is that it's a piece of literature. It is a literary document. And when we consider the literature of, of Jonah, we have to first see that it's a prophetic literature. Prophetic literature, it's not, I know it sounds like a scary word, but it just means that it's a genre or format of a type of, of book where God uses a prophet as his mouthpiece to call back a people to himself. And what's interesting about the book of Jonah is that you think that it's a prophet calling a people back to himself, but actually it is God calling the prophet back to himself. Secondly, it's narrative. It's narrative literature. Most prophetic books are oracles where a prophet is pretty much condemning Israel. Get your stuff together. <laughs> but we see that Jonah is a prophetic book that's uh, narrative. It's, it, there's, there's character development. There's plot twists. There's conflict. 
And thirdly, it's considered sensational literature. Sensational meaning that the author and writer of the book in, intentionally writes the book with verbs and vernacular that evoke deep emotion. For instance, if we read in the very second verse of the book of Jonah, we see that God, the sovereign of the universe, calls his prophet. He says, Jonah, arise, go up to the city of Nineveh and cry out against it. And it doesn't take very long to see conflict in the text. The very next verse, in verse 3, Jonah, who is arguably the Billy Graham, the greatest evangelist of his time, everyone expects this prophet to rise up and go. But we see conflict. Jonah rose up, and what does he do? He flees. He goes the exact opposite way. There's already tension in the narrative. And when God calls him to rise and go up, what does he do? He goes down to the shipyard. And then he gets into the boat, and he goes down into the boat. And then there's a storm, and then the sailors throw him off the boat, and he goes down into the sea. And then he gets swallowed up by a whale, and he goes deeper and deeper. There is a lot of emotion in the text. You feel it. You feel the tension in the story. That's really helpful when we're reading this text. But I want to focus on uh, chapter 2. I want to thank Mike Howerton last week for giving me a lot of room to roam in chapter 1. Um, But I want to focus on chapter 2 today. Chapter 2 is where we're able to see why the Jewish faith, why on Yom Kippur that they taught this book. Why did they read this book aloud? Because in the book is something about God's compassion and teaching the next generation compassion. So I want to study it. Now, one of, the, one of the debated issues in Jonah chapter 2 is that some say that Jonah's prayer is inauthentic, is trite, is not genuine. But in the children's story, I was always taught that it was in the belly of the fish that he prayed this prayer and he obeyed and turned back to God. And I'm not going to tackle that issue, whether or not it was sincere or genuine or not, but I feel that we have enough evidence to see that it was at least biblical. The prayer was very proper, that Jonah used all the right words. we'll, We'll see very soonly that when we're reading through verse by verse, he's drawing from exact phrases and words from the Psalter, from when King David is in distress. So let's do that. Let's walk through the text. Chapter 2. Let's read through it. Verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish and said, I called out to the Lord from my distress, and he answered me from the belly of Sheol. I cried out for help, and he heard my prayer. Now, let's turn to Psalm 3, verse 4. To the Lord I cried out, and he answered me from his holy hill. Very, very similar. It seems very proper. It's kind of how you start a prayer. Dear Father, thank you for this day. Right? We learned that. Your will be done. Psalm 121, it says, In my distress, I cried out to the Lord. And he answered me, almost verbatim, from Jonah. Verbatim. Psalm 18, verse 4, the waves of death engulf me. The currents of chaos overwhelm me. The ropes of Sheol tightened around me. The snares of death entrap me. Psalm 30, verse 3, O Lord, you pulled me up from Sheol, the place of the dead. You rescued me from among those descending into the grave. It's borrowing terms and words from 
the Bible. It's a very, very proper prayer. He gets an A. Let's go back to Jonah. Jonah chapter 2, verse 3. You threw me into the deep waters, into the middle of the sea. The ocean current engulfed me. All the mighty waves you sent swept over me. I thought I had been banished from your sight, that I will never again see your holy temple. Water engulfed me up to my neck. That seems unique. The deep ocean surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Well, that seems exactly what's going on in the belly of the fish, right? Let's look. Psalm 88, verse 6. You place me in the lowest regions of the pit in the dark place, in the watery depths. Your anger bears down on me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. You would think that he's saying this because he's in the ocean in the belly of the fish, but he's borrowing these phrases as he's experiencing this, this ocean. He thinks of David in his distress and, oh, this is what it was like. Psalm 42, one deep calls out to another at the sound of your waterfalls, all your billows and waves. Again, that ocean wave language. Psalm 69, verse 1, deliver me, O God, for the water has reached up to my neck. Exactly, almost exactly the same words and phrase as Jonah said. I sink into the deep mire where there's no solid ground. I am in deep water, and the current overpowers me. Very, very biblical Theologically sound prayer. He knows all the right words. He knows how to phrase it well. We're not arguing yet. I don't know if we have enough evidence to see if whether or not he has a genuine change of heart. But there's something going on. Let's go back to Jonah, verse 6. I went down to the very bottoms of the mountains. The gates of the netherworld barred me in forever, and you brought me up from the pit, O Lord, my God. We heard that in a different psalm. When my life was ebbing away, I called out to the Lord, and my prayer came to your holy temple. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Because in verse 8, he says, he says this line, which gives a little bit away of where his heart is. If there was true repentance if there was a change of heart here, he says, those who worship worthless idols forfeit the mercy that could be there. And that's really strange. And why that is, is because in chapter 1, as the storm is happening, the sailors are praying out to their, all their false gods. And then Jonah stands up and says, oh, it's me, it's my God. Yeah, it's, it's mine, just throw me off. And they throw him off. And then they start praising the God of Israel, and God saves them. But they were the, they were the people who wor worshiped worthless idols. And then if you know the story of Jonah, Jonah gets spat out on the beach, he heads to Nineveh, and he preaches to them, and they repent. The Ninevites who worship worthless idols, and they get saved. So it's very, very peculiar that in his prayer, he says this line, those who worship worthless idols forfeit the mercy that could be there. But the entire book is that. God is only saving those who worship worthless idols. I don't, what is that? And if that's not enough evidence, and if there was a change of heart in Jonah in the belly of the fish, then it didn't last very long. Because in chapter 4, verse 2, after God saved Nineveh, 
He's angry. He complains and he says this. Lord, this is just what I thought would happen. When I was in my own country, this is the reason why I tried to prevent by attempting to escape to Tarshish. Because I knew it. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy, and one who relents concerning threat and judgment. I knew it. But he had this beautiful biblical prayer. And I realize that this text is used as irony, as a paradox, that rabbis would use it showing the next generation what not to do, that Jonah had all the right words, that he even made, did the right thing and obeyed, but he didn't have the right heart. His heart wasn't changed. And so if we want to teach the next generation compassion, what does that look like? You know, I think I, I first saw it with my mom, with my mother. My father left when I was five. His father passed away, my grandfather, and so my dad had to go back to Korea. He never came back. And I never knew why. And the hardest part was to watch my mom raise me as a single mom. And it, 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 it wasn't just the fact that it was financially hard, but it was really the shame, watching her deal with the shame. And in our Asian culture, it's almost unbearable the shame that comes with being a single mom because everyone is presuming, everyone is assuming your situation without really knowing. But what was hardest was to watch my mom go through that all alone. But in her pain, she, she developed a very rich faith. My mother was one of the 1.1 million South Koreans when Billy Graham came to Seoul in the 1973 Crusades. And Billy Graham first preaches the gospel to South Korea. 1.1 million Koreans on the ground in the pouring rain. My mother was one of the ones that stood up, said, I accept Jesus. I'll follow him. My mom is the best spiritual leader I know. She's a prayer warrior. Till this day, she drives 20 miles from her house to the church to pray every morning at 5.30 a.m. My junior high life was terrible, by the way. <laughs> I remember growing up at, at the house, there would just be like notebooks and notebooks, like a mad scientist, and it was just fill, filled with prayers and devotionals and Bible studies. My mom was a beautiful, eloquent prayer she could teach circles around the Bible. But you know what it was? It wasn't her words. It wasn't her prayers. It wasn't how much she knew the Bible. It was when it was most difficult for her to love somebody. 
I saw that. I saw that on my wedding day. The day I got married is the first time my mother met my half-brother. My half-brother is the reason why my father never came back that day. After my grandfather passed away, there's no one left to take care of my brother and his mom. And my mom and I had no clue. So on her son's, her only son's wedding day, the happiest day in her life, the proudest moment in her life, she had to meet someone that represented and symbolized all her shame, all her pain, was the cause of all her suffering in, her, in most of her adult life. She had every right on my wedding day to say, don't look at me. Don't talk to me. You stand over there. Don't even stand next to my family. She had every right to do that. But instead, what I saw was my mother was so sweet to him, was so loving to him. She said, come, sit next to me. She would pray for him. We'd be taking a family photo, and he'd be awkwardly in the back because no one understands how he's related to me. And said, she would say, come, stand right here next to me. She would invite him to her home and said, what do you love to eat? I want to cook for you all week. What I saw was my mom didn't just have the right words. She didn't just pray the beautiful prayers. She didn't just know the Bible in and out. But all of those things came out of a changed heart, out of a transformed life. And luckily for us, our story doesn't end with Jonah. We don't have a story that tells us what not to do. Our story continues and actually begins in the book of Matthew. We have someone greater than Jonah who not only had the right words, not only had the right actions, but showed us compassion, lived compassion, and transformed our hearts by dying on the cross for our sins. And his name is Jesus. And Evie Free, that is who we follow. How do we teach the next generation compassion? It's not only saying the right prayers. It's not only knowing the Bible really well. It's not even singing the right songs. But it's showing that all of those things are out of a changed heart. And Jesus transforms our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, you're calling your people to follow your son. The greater Jonah. The greatest teacher of compassion of all mankind. Not only did he have the right words, not only did he have the right theology, not only, did he, not only was he perfectly obedient, but he showed the word, world the heart of compassion. 
And by his blood, he transforms our hearts. And those who follow him are able to teach compassion to the next generation and empower the next generation of world changers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.